met this six-year-old child in this blank, pale, emotionless face. The blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Welcome to another episode of Subconscious Realms. I'm your host, generally. Uh, and for tonight, we're joined by a very talented individual who covers some pretty interesting content. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome the host and creator of Missing the Point, Drew. Now then, Drew, mate. Hey, you mate. Thanks for having me on. Thank you. Thanks, mate. It's been too long, mate, hasn't it? It we've has been. been we're yeah, we've been going to and from trying to organise this. It's yeah, trouble on being other sides of the globe, so to speak. Yeah, yeah, but we're here now, mate, aren't we? That's it. It came together in the end. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, your series on indigenous spirits. Yeah, I've been. Um, it's been something I've been toying around with quite a while now. It's um. It could be quite a touchy subject, specifically in Australia, because the Indigenous people are respected so much as being the oldest continuous culture in human yeah. recorded history. So it's something that I don't ask questions about lightly or try to piece things together. But I think it's time for someone to start asking some of these questions, because in all my research, I don't think anyone's come at it from this particular angle before or tried to make other things around the world make sense with it. It's, uh, I think it could be something pretty big. It's going down the way of what a lot of Gary Wayne's been looking at, all of his fantastic work about Genesis 6 and a lot of the uh, Indigenous cultures around the world. It's predominantly around North America and Latin America where you see civilised, air quotes, civilizations building up that have architecture, agriculture and all those types of things. And because... For the most part, our Indigenous people were hunter-gatherer societies for the past 60,000 years. It doesn't get a lot of attention. It just kind of falls by the wayside of the Indigenous people were a a nomadic people that would travel from food source to food source and lived off the land in a harmonious way with nature. But I think there's a lot more to it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think it goes back so far, doesn't it? Yeah, that's right. It's um, It's... It's quite intriguing what you find out when you you are allowed into the, the inner circle of tribes and mobs and you have conversations with people and they're willing to speak about their their mythology or their their dreamings, time stories, and really open up to white fellas because it's been a very hard, uh, guarded secret for for the longest time in Australia since the inception of the British anyway that it's very guarded amongst each even each individual tribe. They don't like to speak amongst um between clans, it's very introverted. I think it's, um, it's like I said before, mate, it's intriguing. How they sort of like um, want to keep it to themselves. 
Yeah, which is um, there's a big push within academia and education in Australia at the moment where there's a lot of focus on um, respect and acknowledging our First Nations people, which I think is it's great. It's a part of our shared history. We're all in this one continent together. But it seems to be very one-sided still. Um, whether there's a, a lack of... Sorry, there's a bit of an echo there. Uh, it's, whether there's a, a lack of trust within... Um, the government of Australia because of things that have happened to our First Nations people, which I completely understand, yeah. or whether there are secrets that they they just they can't tell people, which which is intriguing in itself because within Indigenous um, law and culture, there are men's sacred places and women's sacred places. So even between the sexes in the one tribe, there's places that women can't go and men can't go, and there's massive repercussions socially and spiritually for those actions. So it makes me wonder whether... Our First Nations people, they just can't tell Westerners about it because it's not our place to know or whether it's just a bit of a, a trust issue and they're finding it hard to to, to move on from the notably the horrible things that have happened to them. Yeah, yeah. Sounds about right, that, doesn't it? It makes sense. Yeah, so our Indigenous culture dates back. For the longest time, it was believed to be 40,000 years and with recent evidence... It's now become a, a sixty thousand year time frame, possibly even longer. So we've got a a culture that arrived in Australia well before the the the, the floods of um, North America when the ice caps melted, which a lot of people use as a a basis for understanding the flood in the Bible, in Abrahamic religions, in Christianity. So the end of that Pleistocene era, where uh, those ice shelves melted, most likely due to a common impact in, in North America. Yeah. We've had people here throughout all of that time, which is very interesting because everywhere else in the Northern Hemisphere, which would have been impacted directly more so than everywhere else, those cultures and those civilizations, they were kind of washed away. And it's noticeable in where humanity tends to build our civilizations and our towns and our, our cities. We build it on the coastline because it gives us access to the ocean, to water, to travel, to food. So naturally, a lot of those early civilizations were snuffed out, and that leaves this huge gap in our history because a lot of the Northern Hemisphere cultures, they did have a written form, whether it was cuneiform text or hieroglyphics. Somewhere they were recording their history where majority of Indigenous history, that's recorded in oral language and passing down of stories over time with small amounts of being recorded and depicted in cave art, which we've got some stellar cave art in Australia that dates back tens of thousands of years. Yeah. That smart, seems it? Yeah, it is very smart. Yeah, it's um and, and it's it's really telling that this cave art, which is goes back so long, actually backs up a lot of what you consider the mainstream science today. We see in this cave art, we see depictions of re more recently Indonesian and Chinese traders coming to Australia. So there's depictions yeah. of ships that predate European sailboats. So they were trading with indigenous cultures up in the North End. As well as it depicts a lot of our megafauna, which, or not a lot, some of the megafauna, which have died off. So the likes of the rhinoceros-sized wombats, the short-faced kangaroo, uh, thylacines, which have recently died off in Tasmania. Uh, but we're seeing a lot of things that our mainstream science are using through carbon dating and research 
and it's correlating with a lot of this cave art, which is fantastic. It shows a lot of the native animals that are still in existence today. But there's a lot of things depicted in the cave art which go through the lens of is that spirituality, is it symbolism, or is it real life, flesh and blood um, entities that are being depicted? What, like, like for example, like cryptids? Yeah, like, like a cryptids, um, spiritual beings, like uh, yeah. I know Grubbs pretty knowledgeable all in this stuff. Shit. Yeah, all the good stuff, right? Um, there's a lot of, like, uh, within my part of the world, they're referred to as quinkins, um, two major spirits that were living alongside humans or Aboriginal people for the longest time in the dream time where one group of them, the Imjim, which were the the tall, or the Imjim, which are the short little buggers which tend to eat children and duck people and, and hate humanity, and then there's the Tamara, which are the tall skinny ones which look after people, and for it to be a spiritual story or a story of like demigods, which you might find in Greece, that type of stuff makes sense. But when you look at the cave art of them, they're not depicted as actual people. They're depicted as non-humanoid. So they might have the basic tenets of humanity with arms and legs and a body and a head. But then they have strange yeah. things like tails, super sharp teeth, really large ears. Um, and a lot of the time, a lot of these spirits actually look like what you would consider the greys. So the large bulbous heads, very pale in skin, large, large armor shaped eyes. Yeah crazy it? it is um very much so so there's been a big debate for the longest time of whether the indigenous peoples of this country had they had contact with aliens were these aliens being depicted or not um and i was a person who was on board that train for the longest time i was a ufo guy i, I was really into that for the past 20 years and until yeah. recently my thinking switched around that so it's changed my potential thinking of what's being depicted in the in this cave art in indigenous australia do you, do you think um, it's similar to like cave art in like parts of America? I think so. What we see in a lot of North American cave art, we see yeah. like a lot of the ant people, and usually they're yeah. drawn, still have that human figure, but they have quite long, spindly arms, and they might have strange headdresses or strange appendages to their heads, whether it's large ears or horns or something like that. We see the ant people, we see um, salamander people in parts of Central and um, Southern America yeah. depicted. So you really have to ask the question, were these people telling us allegories through artwork or their spiritual beliefs through artwork or were these real yeah. flesh and blood things? And my logical thinking's Occam Razor would be if they're depicting possums and kangaroos and wombats that exist today next to these creatures and next to humans, I think the possibility is definitely there that these things were, were, very, were very real or are very real as well. Yeah. So which which um which of the spirits um have drawn your attention please Well at the moment it's it's looking into Gary Wayne's work revolves a lot around this serpent symbolism and Andy Rouse does a fantastic job of this with his research into Box Saga and I love his approach to um rehumanizing antiquity where Andy's from the belief system that a lot of these ancient cultures and a lot of our myths and legends come from a single source, which I, I, I believe in that as well, but I can't dismiss the possibility that there's something extra human or extra dimensional that's possibly influenced a lot of these early cultures at the same time. I don't think it's entirely human. Um, my, just my personal belief on it, it's almost the hubris of man to think we could do all these fantastical things, which 
I don't think we couldn't have done without at least a little bit of help along the way. No. So, yeah, so the spirits that, yeah, so the spirits that tend to be depicted in a lot of these cultures is there's a lot of um, a lot of sat uh, like what you, you would consider satanic type of referencing now in the Christian faith of the serpent. So we see the yeah. serpent in a lot of these pre-cultures, particularly in Mesoamerican um, America. We see it in uh, North American Indians. We see it in uh, in Europe. We see it in China, particularly. We see it pretty much everywhere and. Yeah. Australia is no different. The major air quotes deity, which is interesting because the Aboriginals don't actually believe in any gods. They believe in spirits and ancestors that they're actually connected to these things and they came directly from them, is the rainbow serpent. So this is a pretty um, famous Australian Dreamtime story where a, a giant snake, um, rainbow in colour across its body, had horns as well as some large ears as well, just like the Quinkins. It created the land and the earth, the mountains, everything, and actually created humanity at the same time. So there's this, there's this always this story of it. It goes back to humans being gifted knowledge from a single source or creation from a single source. And yeah. a lot of the times with these um, pre-Abrahamic cultures or what you would consider pagan beliefs, they tend to go back to a serpent being the purveyor of knowledge and secrets and wisdom. That sounds about right, yeah. No, we even see it um, in in a lot of spaces within Celtic Britain, which is quite funny because I think there's only well, there's only like one or two snakes that are indigenous to to mainland Britain. That like that's like the adder, which in itself I don't think is actually poisonous, that is um, that venomous to human beings. So it's a it's a strange little creature to have a focus of knowledge yeah. and power and everything associated with it. So makes me think that maybe it's not just symbolism and maybe the, the snake itself was a symbol but it's a symbol of a house or a people or a interdimensional being and that's their sigil that they that's being associated with it yeah i like the sound of that as well so on, on your end what do you see in in celtic britain that um you think lends itself to yeah, I don't know if this is your point of view at all, but is there anything in Celtic Britain that you see as being a single source of of knowledge? Like, say, um, civilization kind of came out from a single source. Is there anything like that in Britain that, that you're aware of? Oh, I'm aware of it, no. Okay. So it's, from what my reading, it's a lot of the stuff around the Scythians and whether yeah, all yeah, these Phoenicians and stuff, yeah. they're connected originally yeah. to a single source because we see that through the entomology of how the English language came to be and you trace it back through all the root languages, even um, Proto-European or that's <laughs> the bad word now, Aryan. You go back yeah. through and it's Germanic, all of it. Yeah. yeah, Germanic, Norse, yeah. Celtic, Pictish, um, Latin, all of these languages, even Indian Sanskrit, all goes back to a single source of there was one culture which kind of spread out and at least at some point pollinated a lot of other smaller cultures around it and gave them knowledge and information so yeah like a knock-on effect isn't it? it is yeah whether it's just a natural flow and effect of trade or whether there's something else there if you're a purveyor of gary wayne's work it's it's pretty clear that he indicates that a lot of these cultures or the cultures that were influenced all came from a single source which he puts down to, to the nephilim and that they were 
gifting knowledge to humanity so that they cre- could create their own kingdom on earth and like a lot of uh just like people they tend to feud and go against one another so they've created their own kingdoms so that's why we see the same similar story same ideas but with a different theme going on so you can see yeah. china has its own unique theme india has its own unique theme britain they've all got their own cultural attributes but they all kind of follow the same storyline and emphasis of what their creation stories and histories are which is very unique yeah yeah and um, mate gary wayne is one of the best um on, on anything like this yeah he's absolutely unreal and it's, yeah, I've recently, he's crazy, just, isn't it? yeah he's done a lot of great work i've listened recently listened to one of the many appearances he had on um julia cosmic peaches podcast and the the glaring obvious thing is that even through all his fantastic work, no one's ever touched on, speculated, tried to piece together how Australia fits into it all. And my just natural thinking would be that however long ago the biblical flood times occurred, that wiped the slate clean in Asia Minor, Europe, um, North Africa, all the places that were considered the populated world at the time, they were washed away. But we know that tribes in Latin America africa australia they existed without contact from what the western world was for the longest time so these peoples they were in latin and south america they survived the possibly survived the flood at that time they were continuing their their culture around being demigods and gods being influenced by these nephilim or raphaim depending on whether you're going pre-flood or post-flood and they were allowed to just keep going because we see the the wars of giants and the tribes of israel Israel through all of the Bible and they eventually got snuffed out to the point where they're all killed off. But that doesn't account for other continents and other places in the world where we see these First Nations people, these original inhabitants, they talk about giants, they talk about spiritual beings influencing them. And it doesn't account for that. Yeah. Um, we see it a lot when we have first contact. So when the Spanish arrived in Latin America, we know that they spoke about red-headed white giants on the coasts when they were circumnavigating South America. We hear about it in the Solomon Islands. We hear it in all these different places of the world where traditional Westerners weren't. So it makes me think yeah. that not only were the, the giants wiped out in close proximity to the Israelites, being the Middle East, Asia Minor, and Europe, that they were able to linger and live a lot longer in other kingdoms around the world. And if you're going off a standard timeline of what you consider um, pre-antiquity and trying to line it up with what biblical scripture is, they were here yeah. in Australia for maybe hundreds of thousands of years well before the flood and continued to be after as well. Yeah. So are you, are you more... Um into the the like the law from new south wales say for example or northern territory um my law i've so australia's in a very it's a very upsetting place for indigenous folklore because western influence on our tribes and mobs um disease deaths massacres all the things that have occurred on the eastern coast of australia has really decimated aboriginal populations as well as their as their traditional folklore and their stories if the people aren't around they can't pass down their history if they're forced to learn english 
a lot of that history gets forgotten. So unfortunately, the unintended side effects of trying to keep this culture alive is that we've got a lot of cross-cultural contamination, even within tribes. So we're finding that a lot of law from specifically the Northern Territory, Western Australia, that's being blended into East Coast or South Coast Australian Aboriginal folklore, which actually doesn't exist. So they're taking ideas or a mythos from other Aboriginal um, nations within Australia and they're putting it into places where it traditionally doesn't exist at all. And there's a bit of contention around that between mobs and between different Aboriginal groups and trusts that that's not a good thing, whereas the other side of the argument is it's better having something than nothing, which, in my own opinion, I don't think it is a good thing because you're wiping out the history of the people that are here. It'd be like having a a Russian um, go to Britain and give you give the Russians give you all of their cultural um, history because you've forgotten yours. It's not the same people. It's not the same geographical area. So in the long run, it's not a good thing. So um, my understanding of Indigenous folklore and, and history and mythos, it's influenced a lot by where a lot by the the largest populations of Australia of Indigenous people. So you find that in Northern Queensland, Western Australia, Northern Territory. So I'm very knowledgeable about that. But I'm trying my hardest to actually pinpoint and find the true dreaming stories of Victorian Aboriginals and those of the East Coast Australians. Yeah, and, and do do any of the like the, the spirits are they, are they similar? They are. There seems to be that that same motif of having the good spirits and the bad spirits, which seems to be right. a, a thing that's replicated across multiple cultures around the world. But um, if it's if it's what Gary Wayne proposes, these Raphaim or these Nephilim, they're playing both sides. They're presenting them. Some groups are presenting themselves as the tyrants, the overlords, the monstrous peoples, yeah. while the other side plays themselves as the good guys. So whatever way humanity chooses they're going to be in the position to be in control. They'll either bow down to the evil side of things or they'll push back and they'll align themselves with the air quotes good side, which yeah. we see that in Indigenous um, cultures, particularly with the Quinkan stories where the Imjim and the Tamara, they would actively go to war with each other and the Tamara would put themselves in place of protecting humanity and tribes and would even die to make sure humans survive. So were these actually good guys or were these the Raphaim playing the side of good guys and um, thinking about it as if these beings, these fallen ones, these demigods that are now trying to rule over humanity, if they're warring with each other, it's not so much a unified one evil bad guy. It's like small crime bosses, and we know crime bosses go to war yes. with each other. So we could be seeing that in this, in these original um, mythological tales and these dreaming stories. Yeah, that sounds... Uh the idea of it mate if only yeah and i don't and unfortunately i don't think we're ever going to know it's great that we've got this the oldest living continual culture with their artwork in caves and their stories but with the advent of colonization of australia whether it's a good thing or a bad thing we've lost a lot of that information so you have to take it with a grain of salt you have to take what's the mobs are willing to tell you what the history books say and then try and cross-reference it with other folklore from around the world, um, other aspects. You could Some people might use the Bible, others may just use historical context of yeah. other cultures, but whatever you do, I think you need to try and triangulate all your data points, all your information you've got, and then come to a, a logical 
understanding of what you think is going on. As long as you've got your evidence or your your gut instinct on what evidence is telling you, I think that's a good place to be for anyone in research. Yeah, yeah, I agree, mate. Yeah, you've got to believe in what um, in what you're thinking, really, aren't you? That that's it, and. And you know what? You could be researching something and, and your understanding of it could completely flip. And I think the, the best researchers out there in our little realm, our little community, are the people that actually change their thinking on something when being presented with new evidence or new data. That's the best thing. Um, Andy himself, Andy Rouse, he's now going down the route of looking at how the Anunnaki, the Sumerians, all fall into box saga because it's something he's never made a connection with and i think for the longest time he was like oh these aren't connected to box saga it can't possibly be but then he's actually starting to find interweaving stories or themes that connect the two which is really interesting place to be yeah yeah there's some uh, very talented individuals out there mate and the, some of the work they could do yeah it's um <laughs> it's unreal that you have yes. to be a academic with a, a tenure of a, a doctor or a professorship to to lecture on these subjects where we've got the best <laughs> tools in in history at our, at our disposal we've yep. got the internet we've got books we've got everything at our fingertips that the average person can be a yeah a mini mate. expert in themselves can't they yeah yeah it's uh fascinating times to be alive mate it is. It's um. They've even flipped the idea of what an expert is. They've tried to make you think that an expert is anyone that's linked to being professionally trained or has academic um, education and something. But expert in itself, just you know, under the court of law, just means if you've been doing that for a certain period of time. So if you've been a, a hobbyist or a person just researching something for your own liking, you've been researching it three, four years, five years, ten years, whatever, you're in that regard an expert on whatever you're well read on. Yeah, uh, uh, for sure. Yeah. Um, this is what I mean. There's so many talented individuals, and, and what they what they bring. Like yourself with this. This is uh, I. I don't know anybody else who's covering it. Yeah, it's um, it's it's it a definitely a, it's, it's a hard one. Um. I'd like to talk to Grub about it because Grub's got a, a great understanding of the oh, spiritual yeah. side of things. And, and yeah. he comes from it as an idea of more, <laughs> I use this word a bit, the woo-woo side of things, which I think the woo-woo exists, it's there. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I think perspective on it uh, determines what people actually un think their understanding of it is. Mine is a bit different to that. I, I'm a self-proclaimed uh, uh, new Christian, so I take the, the Christian lens of things now but it's not just taking scripture as, as gospel, so to speak. It's actually questioning and unpacking it and trying make and trying to understand how it fits into other aspects of history. There may be connections, there may not, but I think that's it's worth a look. And Gary Wayne, like I said, has done some fantastic work in trying to understand those connections between other cultures, time periods, and peoples. Yeah, but but mate. I, I fully agree with you, but Grub, Grub goes wild on it. He's, um, he's brilliant, Grub. <laughs> he does. <laughs> yeah, he's um, he's quality, mate. He's like someone's put jet fuel on a V8 and just let him go for it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, um, it just makes it sound even even more interesting than what it already is. 
Yeah, yeah. It's um even on its on its face value, if you just to take indigenous folklore and and stories as that as a story and as something that you can put in like a bit of a history book, it's really fascinating. And if you try to to peer through the curtain as to what it could really be or what it could potentially be, it's even more fascinating again. Yeah. It's like um like the hour and the connection to the Sasquatch. It's um crazy isn't it it is um i i work with an indigenous woman an old older woman um she'd be getting close to being elder in the tribe now um so we talk about things and she's adamant that the yaoi exists physical being she told me a story where she was at a with her sisters and her cousins and they're at a, a a women's spot so a sacred women's spot and they were camping and they were doing their thing and in the middle of the night, they heard something in the brush and the scrub and standing just outside the light of the campfire was this seven to eight foot tall hairy man um, who was covered in a ginger-like hair. And I have to joke and say, well, I wasn't there and I'm not that tall, so it couldn't have been me. But she's adamant that there was this tall hairy man with ginger-esque hair watching the campfire where the women were. And he came back multiple nights watching them, didn't interact, just stood there, within just within the eyesight of the, the campfire. So he was illuminated enough to be seen, but didn't actively act on anything. And they just sat there and they watched him. And, and she said it was the most <laughs> horrifying and, and for her um, eye-opening experience because it put a lot of the stories that her elders and her grandmother and the family's stories in her own mob and tribe had passed down and it made it real for her. So... I take her on her word. She's a very believable woman. Yeah. Um, I, I trust what she has to say. And it's fascinating that these things could be out there. And that's something else that in the indigenous cultures point out that their, their spirits air quotes were physical blood beings. They could be killed. So when these tribes went to war against the evil ones, they were able to kill them and their blood would be spilt and often spilling of their blood would create animals or would create, um, landmarks within australia and create new things which kind of lends itself to the gary wayne analogy that the nephilim were interbreeding and creating all sorts of horrible creatures around the world that it's almost like a genetic engineering that if these creatures blood was spilt and it created something else is that just engineering of new life with whatever was in their dna it's a it's a speculation that's a an interesting point to go through yeah indeed mate yeah. I mean, some of the uh, like the hybrids, what you what you hear about, like Gary talk about, they were. Uh, if only we could see them, mate. Exactly. Um, I've got a bit of theory, a theory around that. Prior to making these connections with the Raphaim and Nephilim, as to what these bipedal creatures could be, I just for the longest time believed that these were some kind of human. Um, human cousin, something in our family tree that has been very good at hiding and avoiding people. Uh, but I'm coming along the lines now of there was at least 12 upright walking hominid early humans existing on the planet at the same time. So my understanding would be that these are either early versions of humanity created by God, like the testing grounds for what humanity could be, or these were the original inhabitants on the earth, like the Bible talks about the beasts of the field, these creatures that were here before 
for humans that create yeah. a blood god. So these things could be here. That's a good one, right? Yeah, and naturally they could, because they're so close to us genetically or so close to us, um, evolutionary based, if you're going down the scientific route, hybridization can occur. We see it in tigers and lions. We see it in horses and donkeys. A lot of the time people think that that causes sterility, but it's it's pretty far from the case. There's a lot of hybridization that happens, even within our own human history and our human family tree. Each of our individual races on the planet have different hybridization with archaic humans. We see Neanderthal predominantly within Western Europeans. We see a small percentage of Neanderthal, large percentage of Denosovan within East Asians. We see um, an archaic ghost species found within sub-Saharan Africans. So it's a species that hasn't been identified, but we're seeing all these different types of intermingling, interbreeding between these types of humans that have created modern humans as they are today, which would kind of explain why there's such a variation in races. Um, would, is the race, the idea of race just skin deep? Is it a reaction of um, the climates that we live in over hundreds of thousands of years? Does that change the melanin in our skin? Does it change our facial features? Or is it the physical characteristics given to us by other hominid species? Yeah. Do you think, um, do you think, Drew, that some form of, uh, like, interdimensional entities uh, at play? I, I believe so. Um, you, you see that in, in the Bigfoot and the Yowie type of um, stories and folklore that they can appear and they can disappear without footprints. Um, a lot of the time in North America, they're seen and associated with orbs or lights, which people tend to try and make the connection that Bigfoot and aliens are connected. I tend to believe that Bigfoot and the craft we're seeing are all from a single source and they're coming from one dimension, which in itself could be the Rephaim or the Nephilim just stepping in there, like just out of phase of our reality. They're like, they're like in that fourth dimension and they can quite easily step in and out like we can draw a stick figure on a two-dimensional piece of paper. That's how we interact yeah. with the 2D, and they just interact with the 3D in a different way. Yeah, I love that idea, mate. That is a <laughs> top idea, that, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and we see that in uh, in Indigenous folklore. There's, like a lot of places, gods are usually associated with mountains or cliffs or places that have high quartz content. A lot of the, the top-end um, sacred sites in Australia they're large, large rocky formations that have a quartz, high quartz um, content in them, which means they're very crystalline. And we know that even through modern physics, crystals um, can vibrate at a frequency that can be altered. So theoretically, you could yeah. change the frequency of a crystal and potentially, and this is me speculating, potentially open up a doorway between different realms of different dimensions. And this is where these homes of these Quinkins and these spirit entities come from because they'd often be told they'd walk into a mountain and disappear or they'd step out of a, the nooks and the crannies of a mountain that a person couldn't fit in, fit in between. So are these rocky outcrops and these sacred sites just the the doorstep or the doorway from where how they come in and out of this realm? That's a question that I've been asking myself a lot, quite a lot lately. It's like uh, I've spoken about this with um, Triffin from um, unlocking the code about the portals in, in Australia. Yeah, yeah, it's um, it's um, it's fucking crazy, man, isn't it? 
It is. There's I can't remember the exact name of it. There's one in the Northern Territory where it's it's quite low, but it's 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 almost seen as a bit of a maze because you can walk in and around it. People get stuck and lost in it supposedly, and people have lost cattle there. People have gone missing in missing in that place. And the Aboriginal people of the area see that as a cursed area that you shouldn't actually go to. So my instant thinking is maybe that is a doorway or a portal for some of these more malevolent beings and they are abducting people. Do you think it's like, uh, well, like connected to the shit what goes on, like, for example, Skinwalker Ranch? Very possible. Um, Skinwalker Ranch is a place that is considered to be a cursed land. It was cursed by, I can't remember which two tribes. I'm going to spitball here. I think it was the Paiute and the Navajo. And one cursed the other because they were warring with one another. And as a result, there's almost like there's this, uh, there's a gateway that's there now where things can come in and out of, even to the point where we see what would be depicted as direwolves and ancient creatures that no longer exist stepping in and out. So do these portals not only connect to different dimensions, do they they also connect to different points in time and space as well? That would explain a lot of the the sightings we see cryptid-wise around the world of uh, things like direwolves, Loch Ness monsters, pterodactyls, thunderbirds, all these things that are supposed to be extinct that we know supposedly through science were once real living creatures. People have sightings of them. Now you have to ask, is that just in the psyche of humanity because of things like Jurassic Park and The Lost World, those books like that? Or are these real entities and creatures that somehow for the small glimpse of time travel through a portal, come into our timeline and then quickly dip out back to where they belong? Yeah, it's a possibility, Drew. I think anything's possible. Yeah, um, I think all we can do is we have to almost be the philosophers of ancient Greece and we just have to ask the questions. Whether we get an answer, that's something entirely different, but asking the questions brings us a lot closer to not actually asking it at all. Yeah, mate. It makes you wonder on it why there's there's just so little on it. Yes, it's just it's it's an area that isn't actively, as we know, mainstream academia doesn't want to touch this stuff type of stuff with a, a ten foot pole. But more and more they are coming. It's coalescing the conspiracy world or the mythological world. It's coalescing with science to a single point where we know that they're talking about like things like CERN. CERN was developed and we hear from people on the board of CERN that they're actually communicating with um, entities on another side air quotes in another dimension they're using that as a means of communication we're hearing about things like um, anti-gravitic technology that's potentially being hidden from humanity that's actually being used by the um, private industry or the military industrial complex so all of these things which were once considered fringe science or cryptozoology or just fairy tales, they're coalescing to a point with science where they're becoming one in the same. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's like it's like, like the, the connections, I know the, the cave arts connections to like uh, North America, America. Uh, but like 
you know, like, like um, the similarities between the Australian Indigenous and Native American. Yes, that's that's the one thing that I think a lot of historians are trying to understand because we know that humanity, according to the the scientific method and evolution, air quotes would have we all would have come predominantly from most likely a single source for the longest time. It was out of Africa as a theory, which has kind of been turned on its head now. A jawbone and teeth of a early humanoid, upright walking human, have been found in Europe which predates any of the fossils found in Africa. So now it's, a, it's an out-of-Europe theory, which makes a lot of sense considering a lot of the early civilizations, the megalithic structures, were all found in that rough part of the world. So maybe they've started off in a central location and spread out. I tend to believe that humanity didn't stem from any single one source. I think that there were potentially upright work, walking hominids all over the world um, in different places, different types, and through either through outside intervention, whether you go through the alien hypothesis where they were engineered and altered with alien DNA, or you go through the, the Christian belief where the Raphaim and the Nephilim actively bred with human women, I think that's what's created the different um, human subgroups and then to a lesser extent, maybe even different races. But with this, the same thing keeps popping up that they're so similar. How could all these cultures that have hundreds of years if not thousands of years of separation plus hundreds of thousands of miles or kilometers how could they have the same story the same mythos the same understanding of their how they came to be without having some kind of connection yeah yeah um, i think that's what makes it so um fascinating mate just got all the different possibilities yeah, and, and I think this is the space where we need to be able to chat with that we need to be able to chat with one another, even about our different perspectives of ideas, because I could do all the research for the next 10 years and think I'm on one single path and I understand it all, and I could have a conversation with someone else and they could bring something to my intention that I missed or I didn't think of it in a certain way, and that could throw my entire perspective or it could um, make my theory more sound and more concrete but i think the issue in our little community is people they cling on to their their thing it's like the the theory they have or their their hypothesis on whatever they're researching that's their toy and they don't want anyone to take their toy away by disproving it or questioning it even yeah, yeah. and that's what kind of holds us back i think like all things i don't think any one theory is correct it's somewhere in the middle. There's a gray area, which which I think a lot of these theories, they all stem from, they all coalesce from. And I think um, Gary Wayne's doing fantastic work in that regard. He's just coming at it from the biblical and the, the scriptural lens of Abrahamic and Christian religion. I think Andy Rouse is doing a fantastic job coming at it from a very his grounded, historical, flesh and bones humanity perspective. And then you look at it from just cultural myth and legend in, in individual cultures that they think it's all spiritual. It's the woo-woo side of things. I don't think it's any one of those three. I think those three aspects all come from one single source and yeah. our understanding of it's just kind of changed over time. Yeah, they're all as one. Yeah. Uh, we can't have one without the other. That's right. It's like a um, chicken and the egg analogy. Like, what one came first? 
Yeah, mate. Does it really matter which one came first? We've still got chickens and we've still got eggs, so be happy with it. Yeah. That's all I'm asking, isn't it, mate? <laughs> <laughs> True. Um, fucking hell, mate. That was um, a super fascinating. There's um, there's so much in there to learn from with the Australian law. Yeah, there is. Um, and that's just me pinpointing certain perspectives or ideas and kind of throwing it up in the air and seeing what what kind of sticks so once i actually get down with pen and paper and get the drawing board and try to make the the connections that i can i can be confident in saying are evidence or point in direction of certain answers or possible answers that's when i think it's going to get really interesting because there's a lot of folklore out there, a lot of tales from Indigenous cultures that reinforce a lot of other data points, which um, will be really interesting in the future, I think. Yeah, yeah. We'll have to do, mate, is um, have me get Grub on and Gary Wade. <laughs> yeah, that'd be good, wouldn't it? <laughs> yeah. Drew, incredible, mate. Um before you go, would you like to let everybody know where they can get hold of you, please, mate? Yeah, sure. Um, Drew Misson from Your Missing the Point podcast, M-I-S-S-E-N, just apply in my surname. You can find me on all the usual podcatchers. Um, you can also find me on Instagram under Misson underscore the underscore point. I am heavily shadow banned, um, so it might take you a bit to find me. I generally leave my Instagram links in my show notes as well, so you can find me there. I also have a podcast called The Homeroom, Educating Educators, where myself and Kaylee, my co-host, we try to help families navigate the educational system, um, how to get out of public, um, go into private or go into homeschooling, trying to avoid the, the system that is indoctrination. And then I've got a little podcast called Conspiracy Theatre 3000, where myself, Moral Bob, Andy Rouse, uh, we break down Hollywood films for esoteric symbolism and conspiracy theory. Brilliant, mate. Brilliant. You're uh, very busy and you're a very talented, Drew. Uh, that was quality, mate. Thanks, Lee. That means a lot. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to stop recording now, mate, but uh, don't go anywhere, please. No worries. Thanks, man. Your chain and mace your eyes Feels good, it tastes good Must